Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today from the Read Optional, one of our favorite guests, Ali Connolly. Ali, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for having me. Sincerely appreciate you pinch hitting for Nate here. He's obviously got some very important stuff going on as his wife is having a baby right now. So we're going to give him a break and uh, very, very glad that you could join us. So what we're going to do today as we look forward to the week 10 games, I want to talk about some of the bigger questions we have for the back half of the season. A lot of these questions involve contenders, you know, teams that we think are flawed, but are going to be relevant from now until deep into January. So we're going to look at seven games today and ask some pertinent second-half questions that relate to those second-half games. And I want to start with the Vikings and the Bills, kind of the game of the weekend when you look at the records, when you look at all the other slate that we're getting here. And I want to start with Minnesota. We were joking this week when we were prepping this show about the question of, are the Vikings good? And (laughs) I think both of us, it is an eternal question this season. Everyone has asked it. I think everyone has an answer they think is right, but isn't super confident about. So even if we concede the fact that the Vikings aren't good now or aren't great now, the question I have for you and for them as we look forward to this game is by January, because they're going to make the playoffs. Can the Vikings be good by the time it really matters? And what does that version of the Vikings look like? It is the eternal question, and my sense with them is we are going to get two or three teams, as we do every year, who just get hot down the stretch, right? And sometimes that means sneaking into the postseason, sometimes that means a coach sticking around for an extra year when the underlying numbers suggest maybe they should have gotten rid of them. And I do look (laughs) at the Vikings and say, you know, it's a pretty ropey NFC, 
And if you just said top three players on each side of the ball, who's got what? And you run through that Vikings crew, and I don't think they'd be much better in any department than they were last season. Right? I think it's pretty much the same team under the surface, but the top they are top the most level players, of the road team yes. that you could possibly imagine. It's amazing. We can get into that, but I, I just think that the top level talent. Plus dropping Hawkinson on the offense and what that could do for them. Plus just the levels that Darius Smith has gone to, which is I am now super duper star pass rusher and the way they, they've used him and, and leveraged the threat of him. They have the pieces where it would not stun me if they if they had a home playoff game and won comfortably and then they, they made it really, really messy on the road in Philadelphia or somewhere like that. I want to start on the offense. So mm-hmm. what needs to fall into place for you? for this group to become the most dangerous version of themselves by the time the season ends? I think fully implementing Hawkinson and having a real dynamic middle of the field threat after the catch that isn't having to bring either Thielen inside every time or bring in Jefferson inside, which is really cool, fun feature of the offense, right? You want that. You want to be able to manipulate stuff by the way they use Jefferson. But I think having that bigger body target over the middle of the field, and mostly it's it is about Kirk Cousins. It's the eternal question. This is the eternal question segment because it's the Vikings. Is the Vikings will- are the mo- the Vikings are the Kirk Cousins of football <laughs> yeah. teams. Like that's exactly what they are. And the fact that he's their quarterback is almost accidental in yeah. me framing it that way. Uh, with him, it's always will he be aggressive enough, and will he get spooked if he makes a bad mistake? And once that happens it, with them, it always seems like things just start to collapse when he decides, "Oh, oh, I had a bad one early, and I'm I'm kind of either checking out or I refuse to throw the ball to certain spots again." If if they can just have him sustain in this system, continue continue to tinker and build different stuff in that O'Connell wants to do, but that better fits Kirk, I think that that's where they'll find some magic down the stretch. It does seem like what happened on Sunday against Washington, we saw some glimpses of those elements. You already saw what Hawkinson is going to be for them. There were some third downs where he's creating separation over the middle of the field that Irv Smith just isn't. You can see why they made that move with two or three catches that he made last week. And that aggressiveness with Cousins is the most frustrating part about watching this team on offense over the first half of the season. And the fact that Justin Jefferson had four deep targets of 20 plus air yards coming into that game and cousins was in the bottom three in air yards per target among all quarterbacks in the league. It was a frustrating team to watch because that's like, God, I just want them to take one, two, three more chances a game. And they did that against Washington to mixed results, but at least he was pushing the ball down the field a little bit more. So if you're trying to see this in an optimistic way, the stuff we want to see, we got little tiny visions of it on Sunday. I can't even imagine being on the clicker with him in the week where you're just kind of pausing it and just staring at him at silence in the room going, hey, man, that guy's Justin Jefferson. You see how he's <laughs> wide open four times a game? Could we maybe try a few of these? And the Hawkinson point's a good one. I also think Hawkinson, who has been pretty poor in line as a blocker when he was supposed to be kind of the two-way mini yeah. Gronk threat, right? But he's really, really athletic on the move and is a really talented move blocker. That does open dynamic things to them in the play-action game, which will, I think, by design, force Kirk to say, hey, the read is only take the shot or get out of there, right? And I think the Hawkinson being a real threat there where Irv Smith was not, it was in line or get down the field. It opens up a different dynamic for them in the run game, which is essential. And then we'll obviously move into allowing them to do some better stuff in play-action. On defense... Going through some of the numbers of this defense, I'd watch more of the Vikings offense than their defense over the course of the season so far. So sitting down to watch them today and look at some of this, this is like the purest distillation of the Donatel Vic Fangio set of ideas. 
Like their bottom five in blitz rate, it's 15%. They could be dead last in the league. One percentage point separates them and the Bills and all those other teams near the bottom. They've run less man coverage than any other team in the NFL. It's like 13% of dropbacks. So they're purely a zone team, even on third down, essentially. And they have run six or fewer guys in the box on 68% of their plays, which is the highest rate in the NFL. So this is just this idea and philosophy on defense drilled down to its absolute core. And the result has been the 16th best defense in the league (laughs) against the pass. Like they are so middle of the road and so vanilla in some of these ways that it's so hard to get a handle on them. But like you said, they have some elite players. They're unleashing those guys in the right way. I just can't get excited about it, even if I know it's mildly effective. The 2022 Vikings, that's how I feel about them. What I think is interesting though is that guys like pat pete who's playing pretty well and harrison smith that's not really what the idealized version of those guys would be right harrison smith still you'd want him close to the line of scrimmage and he's doing all of the i'm playing front side i'm at the back side but i'm pinching front side right that's not who he wants to be and he's playing well and pat pete again i don't it took him a while to realize hey you can't do that kind of turn and run stuff with the elite guys anymore it's just not the play you are You're, you're advancing in age And those guys have either bought in or just decided we're going to play well. I don't know which one of those two things is. And then Zadarius, as I said, has become a true game-changing top three in the league. Pass rusher, I think in the Brandon Thorne true sack index where he goes through like a a super-duper nerd and charts every single sack in the NFL. He is third in the league right now in um, the highest form of sacks, which is beating a guy clean out of his stance, right? And the thing Donatello's done supremely well, they are not as creative up front as you you said there, but they always, always say, our best on your worst. That's the simple philosophy. Wherever your worst player is, if it's Billy Price, bless him, on Sunday, we're going to line Zedarius' head up over you. We're going to stunt and twist at you. We're going to get our best player swooping on the move to your worst player. Or we'll just play five across and we'll pick the guy that we want to get the match on and Zedarius will play against that guy. And that's a really simple, basic thing. But when you have your best player in the NFL and their worst player, it's a pretty ginormous difference. And when we see it week in, week out now with Smith. What do you think the ceiling is for them on offense and defense? Even like ranking, if you're trying to put a number on it by the end of the season. I think they could be, they could on offense, depending on what happens in San Francisco, and I know we'll talk about them later, but be right there with San Francisco and Dallas for having the, the in that mix behind the Eagles in that second cluster of best offenses in the NFL. I think this is who they are defense. I think they're maxing out right now defensively i feel the exact same way i think they have room to go on offense and i think on defense this is just kind of what it is i don't think you can squeeze more out of those older guys kendrick's you know right on the borderline of being cooked smith right on the borderline of being cooked and smith playing at that level that's as that's as well i think as you could have got out of those guys this season the one thing i will say Saw some flashes from Daniel Hunter last week where he's just doing his weird Daniel Hunter stuff on the edge if he can unlock I'm not saying he'll ever be the 2019 or whatever that super crazy season he had version of Daniel Hunter is. But if he can be the best version of himself combined with the way that Zedarius Smith is playing, I think that is a route to them being a little bit more dangerous up front. But I tend to agree with you. I think the the gains they have to make and the way that they can kind of take a step up in the hierarchy of the NFC in general is with just a little bit more on offense. And there's reason to believe there's still meat on the bone there, even if watching the interior of their offensive line is like a horror movie every single time I turn on that team. But that's a whole other conversation. All right. Well, let's get to the Bills. So so the Bills, obviously, you know, we had some blips over the last couple weeks offensively. But my big question for them, there's only one question now. How hurt is Josh Allen? 
if he plays this week moving forward, what Josh Allen do we get? How limited is he? This really becomes the only thing that matters for Buffalo. Yeah, and it's not so much... It's about limiting the entire menu of things because he didn't get hurt running, but there's no way you're going to put him out in harm's way right? running the ball yeah. if you know he's got an arm injury, at least you wouldn't expect to. And that limits what they're doing. And frankly, I don't think that's the worst thing for them. I'm pretty cool with them saying we're going all spread, all shotgun heavy. We just got to get to the postseason and all the really fun stuff and the how malleable we can be with formations and personnel groupings. Let's save that for the high leverage stuff. Let's save that for the postseason, which is always Dayball's thing. He was like, yeah, when we go to Arrowhead in week six, I'm bringing everything. When we're playing the Steelers week two, I don't care. I'm going to I'm gonna run seven <laughs> concepts and we'll beat them over the head with it because I have Josh Allen. And that for me would be their game plan. And I would just, if he is 95%, I would try and get through a couple of weeks. I know it's tough because of how good the Dolphins are, but I would at least try and say, let's give it a couple of weeks to see if he can get fully healthy. This also feels like an injury. Obviously, every time you have, anytime you have an MVP candidate level quarterback, any sort of injury could derail your season. But when you think about how much they put on him and what sort of onus their offensive success has on the quarterback and his skill set, him being limited damages them, I think, more than any other team in the league except Kansas City. Like a quarterback at 80% changes the complexion of who they are. And I think that's the thing that would worry me the most moving forward. Yeah, well, it would be interesting to see what that group looked like without him, I guess, because they are played in such a unique way now because of Allen's skill set. The way the Jets were playing was not like how anyone else how anyone else would play any other team essentially other than maybe Kansas City. So maybe James Cook would look different. Maybe Stefan Diggs, you know, he's still one of the best receivers in the league. So maybe it would be a little bit different, but yeah, it's a heliocentric offense. It's James Harden, right? That's what he is. Everything <laughs> flows through him. The run game throws uh, flows through him. Play action flows through him. Quick game flows through him. It is all down to the design of everything they do in that Jets game was they didn't even, they just void the intermediate level, right? They just say, yeah, that, we're not about that life. If it's a check down, <laughs> that's Josh. And if something's open, he's going to launch it 20 yards down the field. I'm fascinated by what the offense would look like with Case Keenum. I would rather have Josh Allen play and be healthy just because it's better for everybody. But watching a full game when it matters, when's the last time he didn't play and it was actually a meaningful moment? I mean, it's been years. It's been since yep. he became this guy. So seeing this version of the Bills with Case Keenum dropped into the equation, I kind of want to see it just because I'm curious. But I also don't want to see it because I'd rather just see Josh Allen playing every single week and playing well. What do you think it would look like if he plays and he is limited? And what would the limitation look like? It's a great question. I don't know. Do they lean on the run a little bit more? I mean, that's not the right answer if you're this team in terms of efficiency and all of that. But do you try to minimize the wear and tear you're putting on him? And what does that ultimately look like? I don't know. I mean, you say he, they'll run him less, which I think makes sense if he's hurt. But at the same time, if he's got an elbow injury, does it make sense for maybe him to run the ball a little bit more and not throw it 60 times? I don't know. I have no idea what management of an injury like that feels like or looks like. It's tough. There was the similar thing with Stafford going into the season when there was all the, the talk around his elbow and his arm. And it's like, well, the the best version of that offense is him playing point guard and empty, right? So let's get five guys out and he can he can rip it across the field. That's still my preferred version of Josh Allen, even though I enjoy the fact they came into the season saying, we're going to get more physical up front. We're going to play with tight ends. We're going to play with fullbacks. They still function best when it's like, let's just spread it all out with a super spread offense again. And the check down is Josh. And that 
that is still the best. And I just don't know how compromised that would be by the elbow injury. I, I can't imagine they would say, well, it's a 30 throw pitch count because it would be like, well, why is he out there then? So I, I don't know which way you go. I feel thing. like he would be in more danger running the ball, even though he hurt it in the pocket. Does Is it better for him to just sit for a week or two and for him to get right and say, even if we drop one, we drop two, his health is all that matters. I'm sure those are all the considerations that Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean are going through this week. So obviously something to watch. We'll talk more about Case Keenan playing the Vikings a little bit later. Next game here, Cowboys and Packers. I'm done talking about the Packers. I I have no questions about them. I want to spend no more of my time or energy thinking about the 2022 Packers. Really, the only thing that matters for them this week is seeing the Cowboys offense through a certain lens. You have Rashawn Gary now out for the season. Devondre Campbell is out. Uh, Rasul Douglas not practicing. Preston Smith also banged up right now. That matters because the question I have for the Cowboys is, what does this Cowboys offense look like against a half-decent NFL defense, and what does that mean for how far they can take it this season? And it's really, really annoying from a big-picture perspective because I wanted to see them you know, they play this personnel game where they can just throw a random grouping at you with a random formation, right? And you have no sense when that personnel grouping gets to the huddle, what the formation will be. And once they catch you out, they can jump into tempo. And Dak is the master. He is the closest thing we have to Manning of modulating tempo. And he'll just run the same thing over and over again. Not in a day ball, I don't have players way, but in a I've caught you way. And now watch me cook, right? And the Packers are the only team, no matter what you think of how the defense has performed, where body type wise, they can match up to you in the huddle, right? It doesn't matter what you throw out there because they got Quay Walker and he can play in the slot or he can play in the box, right? Whether he plays well there or not, they at least have the bodies. So I wanted to see the Cowboys when they couldn't have, for lack of a better phrase, this cheat code of we can out-personnel you, out-formation you, and once we've got you, our quarterback makes decisions quicker than anyone in the NFL. And it's, it's just a shame that given the injuries, we might not get to see that. Such an underrated way that Dak affects the game, and when he's in there, you know, it's not just what he's able to do as a thrower you know, against the blitz. We've talked about that a million times. Just the small, subtle ways he can control the game and kind of hold the pen last for the Cowboys' offense. I don't think that gets nearly appreciated enough. No, I, I, he is the closest thing to Manning. He's not regularly discussed as being paid to Manning, but he's the only guy doing that stuff in the league right now. The whole thing flows through him. I, I do think. Cooper Rush having those few weeks, I don't know if it made something click or this is always the game plan, but things do feel simpler and a bit more predetermined, which I think has helped them. I think Dak being in a, as we said, let him cook type role where it's hit the back foot, get the ball out, and he's they just give him a ton of options and it's not as it's not as give him three plays. It does not seem from the outside, give him three plays, let him go pick up the line of screen. So they seem to be getting in and out of everything a lot quicker and it feels to me a bit more predetermined and I I like that for him even though I think he's a genius who can pick all the plays in the world and call it all from the line of scrimmage but you put that now with the added run element of him not scrambling quite as much but that's what they need to be as we get to the postseason because they just have the guys to win one-on-one down and down out uh, on the perimeter anymore plus the boot stuff plus we saw the option game being back and they had just some huge I know they've been playing two terrible defenses back-to-back, but some explosive runs, either him carrying it on the wide lead stuff or the, the double stacks, Josh Heupel, here we go stuff with, <laughs> and, and they just read one guy. And defenses considering Dak again as a true rushing threat is, is just a, a game over type situation for them, particularly down the red zone. Uh, the red zone is exactly where it's hugely valuable. And that's always all I've asked of them. 
he doesn't need to run the ball all the time. But if you have a guy with that sort of mobility as the field starts to shrink, why wouldn't you try to flip the numbers in your advantage? And that's the thing about this is I totally agree with you. The Cooper Rush thing, I do think had some light bulbs go off in that building. It's like, well, why wouldn't we just drop Dak into this version of the offense? What could that look like? And you're weaponizing his movement skills, getting him on the move, all of the play action stuff they can do under center. It's a simpler, more effective offense with a better quarterback. I think that's the results that we're seeing. So the two questions I have now is, can this keep up as they play better defenses, teams that aren't the Bears, that aren't the Lions? We have yet to see that. And the other thing is, do they have one more move left to make? Because my biggest concern about this offense and this version of the offense, even if I'm very excited about it in the same way I think you are, what is the ceiling on it with their pass catching options? And if you drop Odell Beckham into this equation, which isn't just a pipe dream, it seems very realistic that they could make that happen. Then what does it look like and how far can they push this thing? That's the one for me, because I think Gallup's been pretty limited. He's kind of the slant or glance guy, right? They line him up outside, and it's, it's, if Dak wants to get rid of it quickly, that's where it's going. And you can start to pinch on that, and I still... I mean, their offensive line is kicking ass on the ground. They are just bullying people right now, and I didn't think that group would coalesce that quickly. I just didn't think they had as much talent anymore. Uh, still, I think, pretty Steel susceptible. Steele has been great. Smith has been yep. great. I mean, on the ground, those guys can really hurt people. It, it is still, to me, susceptible in the, in the passing game, and I think them having a second fiddle to CD who can be a bit more dynamic in what they ask him to do, particularly in not just having to be Schultz all the time at the intermediate level. I think that is where they're missing something right now and someone who can be, you can slide onto their second best cover guy and feel pretty confident in and that. That is the one missing dynamic for me. And, and if it, I mean, if it's Odell, then that's, that's going to be a pretty scary looking offense. Things they've done well over the last couple of weeks, things that have looked easy that your word are going to look a little harder against better competition? What would that be, the number one thing? That's a great question. I, I mean, can they continue to run the ball that well when they're playing dominant, dominant fronts and teams that play five down and play it appropriately and well and not just basically conceding someone at the linebacking core? One thing that jumped out to me that I've just always liked about them is they are the best team in the league. I come up with these stupidly niche lists of who is the best at these really random <laughs> weird things. They are the best team uh, that worked and we didn't execute it. We are running that on the first drive the next week. They, they had the, the CD touchdown last week, which was off the uh, jet motion into the wheel post, which all teams run now, right? You basically get someone in a tight split running a post, but you get the guy on the move, which should be unfair, right? Should be illegal. CD's getting a running head start. They ran that twice the week before and Dak missing you could see him you know smack his own helmet saying man I should have hit that the very next game the second drive they say we're going back to that play that is what they are best at IDing is is knowing that they run stuff that through personnel alone because they got better players is we know this is open right if we execute it's open and that's where they just they, they are one of those groups where when they execute certain things correctly they are unstoppable it, it's not a matchup type thing to me they just have better players sometimes how did you feel about Kellen Moore coming into this season? Um, I, I thought that last season was quite naive. Um, and, and I thought once you got a lot of the head coaching stuff, there was way too much gimmick-based stuff. I, mean, I love, obviously, how dynamic they are in terms of uh, formations and personnel groupings. It, for me, as an X, as a nose nerd, it's, you know, it's, it's catnip. It's, it's, it's the greatest thing. And I think 
Dak, as I mentioned, is the closest thing we have to Manning. So marrying those two things together should be pretty great. But I, I do think that I think Nate's talked about this before, it being a high degree of difficulty offense, that, that there was not always enough easy wins and too many of those easy wins came out of gimmicky type stuff. When, when you watch Andy Reid, all that stuff is pretty sound structurally and you can trace back through the 70s and 80s. They just look a bit different because he's got these crazy athletes now, right? It's <laughs> most of the basic man-beater concepts ever. He just gets them in some kind of cool, creative way or, or put some kind of motion into it. So I thought there was a little bit too much of... Um, look how smart the OC is. And it's and you just wanted to grab him and say, hey, sometimes you have Dak Prescott and these receivers, they were outrageous. Could we maybe just put him in the gun and let him go to work for a bit? And so, as we said before, maybe the Cooper Rush thing, the light bulb moment of, yeah, I'm just going to run this offense that flows really well, uh, fits really nicely. I can, we can do some cool stuff still with, with personnel and formations. Um, but I'm going to every now and then just let Dak have a drive where it looks like a pretty normal but sophisticated NFL offense. And I have a an unbelievable quarterback who can execute that. It's funny because my concern and my frustration with it going back multiple years is that it was too static for me. It was that they would just line up. Nobody would move. And if that's because they want Dak to just have the controls, right? You're sitting there like it's talk about Peyton Manning. It's exactly how Peyton Manning used to play. But there are moments where that was frustrating to watch. And now I think it's the right mix of their elements where he has the game in his hands when he's using tempo, when teams are blitzing, all of that, but you're still pressing the easy buttons. It's the right mixture of how you can weaponize him, but also making the game easy for him. And I just don't feel like over the last couple of years, they'd ever found that mix. But over the last two weeks, this just feels right. This is the version of the Cowboys offense that I want to watch. And now we get to see if they can keep it rolling. Yep. All right. Browns and Dolphins. Again, Browns kind of seems like we have a lot of answers about them. We'll see what happens when Watson comes back, but not worth digging into right now. My main question from this game, and I think this is a good test because the Cleveland offense does make it difficult in the defenses they play. Is this Dolphins defense going to be good enough in the second half of the season to make them legitimate contenders in the AFC? I think it's less about are they in the general sense good enough because their corners are so injured. It looks like now Byron Jones might not be back. And that compromises so much of who they've been for so long and what they do best, right? Which is play bump and run at a level that that no one else in the league is, is really touching. And to me, it's about, can they get pressure with the pressure paths and in the in the, the pressure profile that is needed in the postseason, which is, can you get pressure with four? Whether that's an organic rush or you're doing all the stunting and twisting they do in San Francisco, or you want to get as creative as you want with zone pressures and creepers and all that stuff, can you get home with four? Whereas when you dig through the numbers now and watch the tape, they just don't do that. They have not been as athletic looking on tape as that we know those guys are right? Their numbers, when they do send four, they're like 26th in the NFL in pressure rate when they rush four. They average less than a sack a game when they rush four. That is just not a postseason profile. Whether you're giving up big plays or or not, it doesn't matter. You have to get home with four. Particularly, you're going to go and play Mahomes, Allen, Burrow, right? You're just not going to be able to send pressure. And they have almost completely changed the dynamic of that defense from the second week of the season when they were still doing all the Brian Flores reblitz stuff they ditched a ton of that and they just moved back to a more new england style of defense sprinkling in some of the the flores type stuff 
And then they make the Chubb trade, which to me was a pretty clear sign of them saying, we can't get home with four. And we think we have a team good enough to go deep in the postseason. And we're going to have to just go and try and ring around and find the best edge rusher we can and hope that that fixes all the other problems we have. Identity crisis may be overstating it, but I don't think they've figured out what they want to be. With Flores gone, you mentioned the first two weeks looked a little similar and then they kind of transitioned away from that. Some of these numbers are pretty jarring, pretty stark. They're 20th in third down blitz rate this season. It's like 24% of dropbacks. The Dolphins are 20th in blitz rate on third down. You look back 2020, 2021, 40% essentially of third down dropbacks they blitzed. So that's been almost cut in half. And they're playing less man coverage on third down. You know, little things. Last or 2020-21 combined, 21.6% of dropbacks on third down, they recover zero. This year, it's 12%. So almost everything they do has been dropped 10 percentage points. So all these extremes that the Dolphins used to live in, they no longer live in those extremes because I think they've been trying to figure out who they want to be and how they want to live with injuries on the back end, a lot of other stuff. And the Chubb trade seems to me... Be like, you know what? We don't know exactly what we want to be, but we know that we need to drop a piece like this in there to maybe find our identity in the back half of this thing. Because if you can line up him and Phillips and Ingram in some sort of capacity on third and seven, that's just something that they didn't have before. That in its own is an identity. And I can understand why they felt like they needed to make a move for that reason. The cover zero stuff is funny because they were doing it a ton still, as we said early in the season. They were giving up 16 yards a play when they did it. The only team that runs it close to them is Wink doing crazy Wink stuff. And the Giants were giving up one yard a play, which is meaning Wink knew when he was blitzing the formation and he had it right, right? That's why they called that. They didn't take the check off at the line of scrimmage. The Dolphins would run it and just get completely cooked. <laughs> and yet they'd still <laughs> run it at the, the, the league leading level. Um... And, you know, I think I mentioned this to you when I came on at the very start of the season, the, the Ravens just kind of figured it out, right? They ran that motection where they were motioning at the snap to completely break the read element of the Dolphins' read blitzes. Yeah. The next so explain, week- the, explain that. When you, when you say the yeah. read element of the blitzes, I'm sure that there are some people who don't know what you're referring to. Just to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, so the, the, the Dolphins would line up with as many men across the line of scrimmage as they wanted to, right? Six, seven, sometimes eight. And the read blitz is just... Um, or you can call it a rain blitz, is they, they take their cue for the blitz on whether someone's staying in to protect or exactly who is protecting. The most basic of ones is putting two guys either side of the center, whichever way the center faces, you drop out and the other guy will go, meaning it should be a free rushing lane because the center's turned away from you. And they would do that all across the line of scrimmage and they would take a lot of the read cues from the edge players. What the, the Ravens concocted was, we'll leave the edge unblocked, but at the snap, we'll motion someone a jet motion, a flash across the formation, and he will pick up the edge defender. So that guy thinks he's unblocked and the free runner in the read. The other guy drops out, but actually, no, he's picked up, which leaves the guy dropping out in no man's land, and Lamar Jackson picked them apart. It, it, the second week, the Bills, the first snap of the game, they run the exact same thing. And I can't imagine what happened on that sideline when they went, oh, no. This thing has been slightly figured out. We did not prepare for this. Um, and they've had to, as you said, had this identity crisis. Well, then what do we do? This is now on tape. We are getting eaten alive when we run this stuff. Um, and the only best possible answer is let's go find a superstar pass rush who fixes all our problems. The numbers in Cover Zero this year are hilarious. So they've still done it more yep. than any other team in the league. They have 33 Cover Zero dropbacks the Dolphins do this season. Teams have a 143 passer rating <laughs> on those plays. 
They're giving up the most net yards per attempt in the NFL when they do that. So credit to them for saying we have to figure something else out. But they've struggled to figure out what that is because even when you watch Javon Holland play as the post safety, you're like, that's not the version of Javon Holland that I want. And when you're watching Xavier Howard play cover two or cover three, it's just like, that's not the version of Xavier Howard that I want. And I think that's why they've struggled is just because they know they can't live how they lived before because of injuries and because teams have figured elements of that out. So if they've tried to transition into whatever this team and this 2022 Dolphins are going to look like, I just think they've run into some issues. And whether they can have some stuff fall into place over the second half of the season with Chubb now there, I think is one of the bigger questions in the entire AFC. I would say that I, I thought they were much, much better against the Bears, which I know sounds a little bit silly. On the two most extreme Justin Fields play, right? The, the, one of the greatest runs, I think, genuinely in the history of, of football, right? And then the, <laughs> the, the throw, in the, throw in the red zone where he takes the giant shot, right? They were getting free runners on him there, and they were really compressing the pocket. They were just came up against a special player having a special day. So I, I would be encouraged by them. If I have a ton of concerns on my defense, but I know going in that I have four unbelievable athletes up front that's a pretty decent place to be in and I, I do think it's just going to take a meeting of the minds and as you said figuring out what exactly do we want to be now we've got chubb and let's base everything around the idea we have to get pressure with four build out from that and if those guys don't come through with it then that's on them because those guys are good enough to, to crush the pocket with just the four of them what do you think of jalen phillips this year I, i've been pretty impressed by what he's done in the within the kind of role that they've created for him because I just expected him to be kind of a bendy edge guy coming into the league and the power he plays with and how he can play inside I just think it allows them to kind of do some more interesting stuff up front because he's just more versatile than I expected him to be I guess I agree with you I still prefer him on the edge um I know why they they kick him down inside I think he'll probably play there more now with Chubb, but I would even try Chubb inside more. I think they can be more creative now having him, Ingram, and Chubb. You can get way more of that overload stuff, I think, with them, and they did that a decent amount against the Bears, right? Chubb on one side of the formation, three guys all the way on the other side of the formation, you're forcing one-on-ones across the board and you can get more more interesting and creative with the exchange game. I, I think he's got a chance to be I don't know he's already a breakout guy he's playing unbelievable this season but I I do just prefer him on the edge even though it's nice to have someone it is that funny thing of you give someone extra credit for doing something well in a different spot and it's like I just really like him flying off the edge I would be totally cool lining him up like Von Miller and saying just play off the edge that would be more than good enough for me he's more powerful than I expected him Mm -hmm. to be based on his physical profile coming into the league and just how he can kind of push the pocket, even from an interior lineman. I just didn't expect him to be that sort of player. And so I, what they can do with all of those guys, I think it's going to be exciting to watch down the back half of the season. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about Seahawks-Bucks, a game that feels a lot different than I expected it to about six weeks ago. All right, I think the overarching question for this game is, how does this game impact the butterfly effect of the NFC playoff race. And that is twofold. That's for the Seahawks and the Bucks. So with the Seahawks specifically, I'm curious what you need to see out of Seattle on Sunday and over the next two months for you to feel really good about their status as an actual contender in the NFC. Where do they need to be better than they've already been in what has been a shocking season for them? 
I think it will be pressuring the quarterback. I think that they've, ever, across the board, they've played obviously above expectation. The young guys on the back end have been unbelievable. Gino has been a legitimate MVP candidate, which is wild and fun and great. <laughs> um, and Nwosu's been a great pickup up front. He's been their best player up front. But I, I think it will be a more consistent, sustained pass rush that will be the thing that said, okay, they could go into somewhere and upset someone. What have you thought about the guys, the young guys on the back end and just what you've seen from them for the, over the first half of the season? I cannot believe Tariq is this good this fast. There was no better situation for me than saying, let's send him to maybe the finest defensive backs coach in all of football who still takes DBs every single day than sending that guy with that profile who is just the incredible Hulk somehow playing cornerback and let's send him to Pete Carroll. I thought in three years, we might have something a bit special. You know, there was a time there I thought Trey Flowers could be something because Pete had taken him and installed him through that boot camp and it was starting to see some subtle signs of him getting there and he just found someone a little bit better and it's happened almost immediately and I think Bryant has been getting slightly better he's not as athletically gifted as Woolen obviously and it really should have been with those guys right the reverse it's like Bryant will be will be better right away but with with Woolen the ceiling will be uh, you know the best cornerback in the league with that athletic profile and really it's been the reverse where Woolen's just been great from the get-go <laughs> and is now getting better and better and better particularly in terms of the anticipatory stuff and you know reading different route combinations and all the nitty-gritty details he's not just this athletic flyer who makes plays through pure athleticism or only halfway through season one I, the, the 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 limit is just out of control is there anything about their offense that feels a little tenuous to you that you think could fall off over the back half of the season? Or do you just think this is who the Seahawks are? They're just like a borderline top five offense. It's a tough one because I love Gino. I think everyone loves Gino. There is an element of like, will the bubble burst at some point? Is he really that's, just this that's playmaker That's what I'm worried now? about. Or is he just this guy? If the answer is the latter, that's insane. But I kind of believe it. Well, the thing that I've always believed, you know, you can go back to West Virginia, which I know is a long time ago now, and see him just break people over his knee as a deep bomber, right? That to me is not The guy could spin it. There's no question about that. The 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 playmaking arriving out of nowhere and being that spry when he just wasn't that I know that he's telling everyone I've been this guy the whole time and maybe that's correct with the right coaching but he just was not this kind of off script creator doing Patrick Mahomes type stuff at any point in his career even back at West Virginia it's not like we saw that in college and it took forever to see it in the pros so is that sustainable I guess I don't see why not um, he's shown us he can do it now, so maybe it is sustainable. I, I don't know. The, my question would have always have been, if the two tackles struggled, could they have got better? But again, it's like uh, like Woolen on the other side of the ball. They've just been good from the get-go. I don't know why they would suddenly become bad rookies when they've been unbelievable rookies from the jump. The one, the area of Geno's game, I think, was probably the most concerning, even when he was playing relatively well last year, is he ate a lot of sacks. He was somebody that was statuesque in the pocket in a negative way. Now he's statuesque in the pocket in a positive way where he's just willing to sit in there and play within traffic and with bodies around him. So if that shifts back into a negative direction where he starts getting sacked a little bit more often and these moments where he's really hanging on to it don't end in all of these positive plays the way that they have been, I guess that would be the thing that I'm most concerned about. But his clock and just his ability to get rid of the ball has been much, much better this year than it was last year. Oh, he's just unconscious. And now he destroys the blitz. 
that was always a big thing with Gino. You could just overwhelm him, and to your point, he would either start looking it down or get a bit panicky, and he was always ripe for two or three disaster plays a game, even though you would see the highlights and flashes of someone who could be pretty good. Now he just eats the thing up, and you don't rarely see, you know, when is the last time we saw someone magically decide, I'm going to be good against the Blitz now eight years in the league? That doesn't happen. This is, no. this is a such well, a all of this, wonderful story. I And, you know, got a couple guys that deserve credit. Lindsey Jones, credit to her. She pointed out that Shane Waldron deserves a lot of praise for what he's done this season. Andy Dickerson, who is their offensive line coach and run game coordinator, same sort of conversation. To have two of those rookies come in and for you to look at that line and have it be a positive, not even just that it's forgettable or a middle-of-the-road group. The fact that it's an active positive for who the Seahawks are, that offensive line and the way that it's constructed, a lot of credit to that staff and to those guys for getting them to that place. Yeah, and Shane Waldron showed us this, by the way, in the first four or five weeks when he first got the job. Remember, they were doing, they were running an unbalanced line for like four or five drives a game. He was trying to do some really wacky stuff with Russell Wilson, and by week six, he was going, why am I installing this stuff all week? And Russell refuses to throw the ball to the, the spot time <laughs> opening wide open. Pete apparently tells us he wasn't reading the wristband or whatever was happening, but the the signs of the Waldfent, Waldfent, how would you say that? I don't know. The Waldron offense, they were there. All along, he he's he was a pretty cool play designer when first given those keys, and then I don't know what happened uh, with Russell last season. Russell but Wilson yeah, happened. That's how it tends yeah, Russell to happen. Wilson happened. Yeah. For the Bucks, this is another team that still very well might make the playoffs based on what the landscape of the NFC South looks like. Is there any chance that enough falls into place? by the time the postseason rolls around, that the Bucks become dangerous? And what does that look like for you? Um, I'm pretty concerned. The one thing I'm, I'm impressed by is how much better Todd Bowles has been at making in-game decisions as a defensive strategist. As a head coach, he's been all over the place. And that's the problem, right? They promoted him to keep one of the best defensive coordinators in the league. And he's been really, really good in terms of timing of the blitzes and kind of adapting and adjusting mid-game. Um, will that sustain with Bowles? Always that's a question mark. Sometimes he just returns to, to top Bowles territory at whatever point he decides. And that, that would be concerning for me because they just don't have the horses on the back end, uh, I think, or certainly not playing at the level. And particularly if Antoine Winfield is, is in and out. And then obviously on, yeah, on Davis offense, being banged up, Winfield yeah. being out. It's just you can see how the impact that that's had. Then there's the offensive stuff that is just completely fundamentally broken. And, and I would hope that it was a light bulb moment in the the lone drive last weekend where it would say, why do we not just put Brady in the gun, go five out as often as possible and let him just go tempo, tempo, tempo. And he's got to throw the ball 50 times a game. That's what he has to do. This insistence, everyone has now seen the running on first down figures, but just in general, the whole run game is broken. And the thing that made Byron Leftwich really, really good over the last few years was the layering of the offense off the run game. It was not just that they ran the ball and they destroyed people off the ball, it was that he was just one of the best in the league at building everything in the plan out of those run actions. So once you take that first layer out, we are being shown, and I don't know whether it's him or, or a message from the head coach, that once you take that first level out, they just obviously have not been anywhere near as good in terms of game planning or designing stuff that doesn't flow together in the dropback game. I don't know why you wouldn't just hand the keys then to the finest player to ever play the position and say, you know, let's just give it to him and let him figure it out. That If you're building the optimistic case, that's where it starts. It's yeah. them understanding that let's throw it 55 times a game. Let's just not keep running our heads into the wall. I mean, 
they've lost more EPA on runs than like teams over the course of entire seasons over the first half of the year. And, and you just can't keep living like that when you don't have enough answers. Okay. Chargers and the Niners. Let's start with the Chargers. All right. The Chargers are not going to be the team that I and some other people thought they were coming into the season. You know, this is a team that spent more cash on their defense than any other franchise in the NFL this year. They're fourth in cap spending on defense. This was supposed to be an elite unit. The offense we've talked about ad nauseum, all of the frustrations and all of the shortcomings. We don't have to re-legislate that. But the defense, I'm curious. They aren't going to be who they thought we were going to be. But what do you think is a real ex- expectation for the Chargers defense the rest of the season without Bosa potentially for a little bit longer and without JC Jackson for the rest of the year? Without Bosa, I mean, it, it could get even worse. I've, I hadn't studied them properly until you said we were talking about them. And this was a like, I'm going to have to go for a walk around the block type of day going through these guys, right? I would sit and watch two drives and then get up in a frustration and go for a walk and then sit back down and then get up for another walk the next two drives. It is the same old problems they've had now for two seasons. And they try and do different things with the placement of their linebackers. They've tried to do different things in terms of the the choreography of how they're getting to the run. And yet every single thing is the same. Still can't set the edge, still get blown off the ball inside, still slow playing it at the second level in what has always been described as one of the the fast-fitting groups in the NFL, right? Seven man at the snap. We get seven men in a wall at the snap and we tempt them into running the ball and then we're seven at the snap. That was the kind of the the basic ethos of the entire structure. And when you- Explain that a little bit more. Oh, it is- Honestly, exactly as it sounds, that no matter if we're in a 5-2 base or in a 6-1 and we're playing, you know, five across, bare front, or we're going to pinch the inside gaps, we're going to play with two deeps, we're going to tempt teams with the light box theory into running the ball at us, and then at the snap, we'll build a seven-man wall, and they won't be able to penetrate it. The, the whole point or the way you get to a bad run defense is just getting knocked onto different levels. Is fr- The whole point of the kick-and-go wide zone run scheme is to fracture the offensive wall. So there's space for a back to either one cut and go or to slither and dance his way through the thing. And they are the, I mean, you've been through it, right? It's like every single snap, three or four different levels to the wall. That's, that's not a wall, right? It's some kind of strange staircase dancing from one man <laughs> to the next guy, plus not setting the edge. And it is just mind-boggling. At what point is it that these players aren't good or that they have not figured out a correct way to coach and fix this? I don't know if they've decided that this weird pity-pattering thing with Drew Tranquil and Murray at the second level of, let's really slow play it and ride out. We're getting just crushed at the first level. So you guys take your time and figure out where the ball is. I don't know if that's the adjustment they've made, but if, if it is... It's a horrifying one because it's just made things worse. The frustrating part is they don't even play like that all the time. There are so many plays where Murray's running himself out of the play or he's running himself straight into a block where the combo doesn't even have to climb up to him. They just make themselves eminently blockable, like as a second level of the defense consistently. And at a certain point, it's like, all right, well, what else do you want? Right, You have one of the most expensive defenses in the league. You went out to get Sebastian Joseph Day. You went out to get Austin Johnson, who's now hurt. You spent a second-round pick to go get Khalil Mack, in part because you were excited about what he could do for your run defense. And I understand that losing Bosa is frustrating, but this is the way this team was built on purpose. They had two edge guys on their 53-man roster when the 53 was announced. Two. And part of that is, well, Kyle Van Noy can play the edge for us. Kyle Van Noy struggles to set the edge. And he has consistently. When you watch that game, it was not going well. So now you have a team that 
is expensive on defense. You supposedly had the players in there that were going to fix this. They are 28th in run defense success rate. Depending on the version of EPA you look at, they are between 29th and 31st in run defense EPA. Well, we've swapped the players out, and the results aren't any better. So what are we doing here? No, and and it's a hard one because they've tried to do different things with the placement of the linebackers. And they try it drive to drive. They're like, well, what if we move these guys here? Well, what if we move these guys here? And every single time it's 10-yard, 12-yard, 15-yard thing flying past their rear hole down the field. So I don't know what they do. It, that, it, feels, it feels like a structural problem, but then also a just specific coaching issue. And we're dealing with someone here who is the wonderkind of the league defensively, yeah. right? He had the unbelievable season in... In, uh, in LA and this was where the entire league was going to go and they were going to take his lead moving forward I don't know why they can't adjust it and why they, as you said they've swapped the players out so at some point it's not an issue of the raw talent that you could certainly build a better structure with this group of guys to make them at least a bit more effective I think and you talk about how the league the, the Staley ideas became the meta defensively for the NFL well he's drifted away from those in a way that almost feels like a necessity their blitz numbers are kind of shocking. Like they are seventh in third down blitz rate this season. They blitzed more last year than you would typically ascribe to a Staley defense. But my assumption was they just didn't think they had the guys. So they had to force the issue a bit. After they made all of these changes to their personnel, after they went out to get Khalil Mack, this team is blitzing on 37% of third downs. And it's working. They're 10th in EPA per dropback when they blitz and 28th when they don't. And this idea of unless the Chargers are getting home with these funky pressures, they can't function on defense is not a version of the Chargers I expected to see this season. It's not a version that we expected to see. It's not a version that will work long term. That's just no, not going to happen. It's not the them. one they want to be. No, it's not they want to be. I mean, they play a ton of man free too, and they're doing it without JC Jackson. The, the whole point of getting JC Jackson to begin with was, well, we can lock JC and then we can zone up everything else and we can get really creative with the combination coverage and watch what Brandon Staley's going to do when he can lock one guy and do whatever he wants with roaming and moving Adderley and James and get really cool and creative that was the idea. with those other corners. And it was going to be this thing that broke our minds. Wow, this is so cool. And meanwhile, Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack are high-fiving at the quarterback because he has no idea where everyone's rolling to. <laughs> and it just doesn't look like that it's not executing no. like that so it's um it, I, I mean they've tried to get through it they obviously lost jackson but it, it the, the fundamental problem is still that their main fundamental problem they found good solutions around it in the past game and for that you must give them some credit in terms of getting off the field on third down but that mean they are consistently in some of the worst third down situations because they just cannot do anything on early downs I did not expect my favorite part of watching the Chargers defense to be the ideas they have with their third down pressure package. And they do some cool <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I mean, they have some really interesting ideas. I mean, against the Falcons, they had multiple third downs where they get off the field because, you know, the Tranquil's lined up in the A gap over the right guard, but he crosses the center and it fucks with the protection plan or Derwin's coming from depth in a way that's hard to account for. And it's like, all right, that's really cool. I enjoy watching that. I didn't expect that to be the only thing I enjoy watching about <laughs> the defense. And you only have a limited window with Herbert being on this sort of contract. The clock is ticking when you've got a guy that's this valuable. The plan that the Chargers had was, we're going to use the surplus value created from our rookie quarterback contract on defense. That's what we're going to do. We're going to trade for Khalil Mack, who has a $27 million cap hit next year. We have Joey Bosa on that extension. We just gave Derwin that extension. 
We have J.C. Jackson coming in on this huge deal. We're going to sign multiple free agents on the interior of the defensive line. They left the offense alone. The offense is the same group of guys that it was last year. And this is the world that you're not living in. You can't make those moves and be 16th on defense, even without Joey Bosa. That's just not, you're not getting enough juice out of that entire set of bets to justify the way that you built this team in the offseason if that's going to be the end result. And they're frustrating in, in a number of ways, but it's just they should have, at minimum, one of the 10 best run defense units in the league based on the spend and the coach. And they should be one of the best deep shot sides in the NFL. And they their numbers get messed around with because Herbert is such a special player that he'll just uncork three a game, even if it's not necessarily always within the design and flow of the play. But that should be, at minimum, that's what we are. And we'll figure all the other stuff out year to year, right? And it's the complete inverse is that they have one of the lowest average depths of targets throwing the ball, and then they can't stop the run defensively. All right, let's get to the Niners here. Pretty simple question on San Francisco's side. What is the ceiling of this San Francisco offense with all of these dudes now in the fold? I'm not a man of hyperbole, but we could be in like football life territory of the quintet. I and mean, it's just those five guys in, in 20 years and you, you'll be sat there for NFL films discussing how this changed <laughs> the modern NFL and we don't even have positions anymore. And was this the Golden State Warriors of our generation in pro football? Because if you just go from a X's and O's matchup perspective, I do not know what you do. When these guys arrive in the huddle and it's Kittle and the Juice Man and McCaffrey and Debo and Ayuk, what is happening? Are you calling that that 12? Down that list. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is awesome. Brandon Ayuk is like one of the best 12 receivers in the league. And the fact that he's fifth on that list is insane. Anyway, continue. But do you call that 12, 21? Is it two back? What is your check? There is just no way of knowing this. And they can get to five wide from that and be really comfortable, right? All those guys can can beat press coverage, can catch the ball, all that stuff. Or they could get really tight and condensed and just slam you with the run. I, I That is just from that general macro perspective, there is no answer for that. No one has a personnel package. Maybe, maybe athlete for athlete, the Eagles could get close, maybe defensively. But there's, there's just no way of knowing that there's not going to be any sort of tendency because they can completely discard one thing one week to the next with that group of guys in the field. We haven't seen McCaffrey fully unleashed with Debo on the field. He did not play last week when McCaffrey had a full week of practice. So that's something to keep an eye on. I'm wondering, with McCaffrey now there, what is the biggest thing you worry about? If you're a defensive coordinator, what is the specific thing he presents that they could not do before? I'm not sure if there's necessarily one thing they could not do before. He's obviously just a better vertical receiver. He's the best vertical Mm -hmm. receiver from the backfield in the league. So that presents its own unique threat, obviously, and it presents a unique threat whether he's flexed out and then you have a check for that and then they reload him in and then they can reload Debo in as well, by the way, then all of a sudden, oh no, we're in two back and I thought that he was flexed out because he's a true receiver. That's the problem. Then he can get north, south, vertical from the backfield. They're just... The problem is options. There's only so many hours in the day, Mace. And you will be, uh, I don't care how many sleepless nights these coaches have, how many Red Bulls they crank. There is not enough time to try and figure out all the perspective options that Shanahan could have been designing, I'm sure, giggling over a bye week. I'm curious. So, the biggest question about this team's ceiling and about what might hold them back on offense is obviously the quarterback. It's going to continue to be the quarterback. How does Christian McCaffrey's presence and now this entire group as a whole alter the Jimmy G conversation? 
and limit just kind of the how much he can pull down the rest of the offense. That's harsh. I'm just saying that they hit a ceiling because of the quarterback. Yeah. How does Christian McCaffrey's presence change their quarterback-driven ceiling? What's tough about it is, you know, I want to say, well, they, it's just going to be an advantage. They'll always have an advantage somewhere from that specific personnel grouping and pretty much any personnel grouping because they'll always have at least three of those guys in the field, probably four of them. So there will always be an advantage somewhere. So we should be able to be able to just play matchup ball, you know, pick the target and go. Um, but the way Garoppolo makes his mistakes, the way he makes his mistakes anyway, and it's not like he's not had three, four unbelievable weapons in the first place where they could do all those cool stuff before. And now they're just sprinkling on a, a really great running back. So, you know, his issue is disaster errors turning bad plays into disaster plays i'm not sure you can just take that out of him magically because <laughs> mccaffrey runs really nice angle god routes. i wish i could <laughs> and then uh, we've spoken about this before the where he throws his interceptions is in the uh, not always the exact same spot but it's like 70 percent of the time he's throwing an interception to the, the a couple of varying coverages but to the exact same spot basically in the middle of the field 15 yards down the middle of the field I, it's another one where i don't think that that's just magically going to get better because mccaffrey would be the target person in that zone all right jags chiefs start with the jaguars here i'm wondering what does the jaguars defense need to do over the next year so because the jags probably aren't going to make the playoffs right like it's they've had enough terrible heartbreaking losses where this season is all about planning for what next year is that's why you trade for calvin ridley in the middle of the season but what does the jags defense need to do to go from sort of being this fun curiosity to being a unit that can be legitimately good over the next 18 months it will be figuring out what to do on the back end to to match up with what they're doing up front. I think that Mike Caldwell is probably having as much fun as any DC in the league is having in terms of designing <laughs> stuff, right? They've just said, hey, man, would you like six of the best athletes on earth and go and draw things up? And he was like, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. Um, and they do as much interesting stuff as any team in the league. Early downs, late downs, does not matter in terms of manipulating people's fronts through where they deploy all these different freakazoids they have on defense and they can manipulate the protection and attack the protection in just different ways because they've got two linebackers who are unbelievable. Well, Lloyd struggled a bit in coverage recently, but unbelievable in coverage or as blitzers. And they've got these edge guys who can play inside, outside, and it's just, we know all the names. It is to me about figuring out then what do we do on the back end with that? Do we want to move and rotate quite as much as we're doing now, which I don't think is the sensible option. They play a ton of country spot drop zone. And the idealized version would be to be as much as a press man team as possible. And we'll do all our funky cool stuff up front with movement. And then we'll just, you know, shut everything down on the perimeter and play as much press as possible. I'm not sure if you've seen, but there is a massive gulf in just the, the the depth of their defense from that front line where they crowd the line of scrimmage and then those two safeties play way off the ball. And I'm not sure how sustainable that's going to be moving forward. If you're saying we think Trevor Lawrence is going to be good and our path will be Burrow, Herbert, Mahomes, Allen, I'm not sure saying, hey guys, you can have 12 to 15 yards of open territory and Andy Reid can have a week to game plan for that is going to be the right move for the next 18 months, two years. Am I crazy to think that that's the best version of the Bulls-esque defense is the one that's really aggressive on the back end combined with all the crazy shit on the front end? Like when you yep. think back two years ago to when they won the Super Bowl, the amount of two-man that they were playing, the amount of like, we are going to beat you the hell up 
with all of these guys. That's the version I like watching the most. I think it's the most complimentary version that exists. So watching them do all that spot drop cover three, where there are these oceans of space combined with them pushing the pocket the way that they do, it almost feels counterintuitive and counterproductive to me sometimes. Well, it's... It- the whole point of playing defensive football and moving is to add an extra beat to the quarterback, either because there's pressure coming in his face that he's not expecting, something's flashing, there's some kind of color flash in front of his face, or he has to take an extra second to think because something's moved or rotated on the back end. Why you would then have mess around with doing that up front but allow free access on the back end, to me, doesn't make a bunch of sense. It, you want to go really with one or the other where you're doing something kind of cool and creative on the back end and then keeping it pretty stationary up front or vice versa. And, you know, you can do some of the spag stuff. You know, he's just a, a wizard and he does everything all at once. And, and Wink does that too. And I think maybe going down the path of, although it's not been great this year, but like Patrick Graham, where he says, I'm going to do the really crazy stuff. Can I have five of those a game, please? And, and I'll put that in the game plan. <laughs> That's probably the correct way. Whereas, yeah, as you said, I mean, the ideal coverage at any time is two man, right? It's the best coverage in, in, yeah, in, yeah. In, in the league. If we can play two man all the time, happy days. That's what Dennis, Dennis Allen does. But that, that's that Saints defense was a blueprint, which is similar to what Robert Salah's trying to do, which is we are going to play a ton of press because we're going to get great corners. And then we're going to use one guy to set the protection. That's our move piece. And once we have set your protection, then we can just detonate the pocket with four guys. And then the fifth guy is kind of an option guy down to down if we want to include him in, in the rush or not. All right, let's talk about the Chiefs here. Big question about the Chiefs in the second half of the season. Should we be worried about the occasional duds we've seen from Kansas City's offense? And are we a little bit concerned about this man-heavy blueprint that you can unleash against them based on the receiving options that they have right now? I, I'm not really because the man on third down stuff, which is essentially being let's let's play as much man coverage on third down as possible defensively and hope for the best. It's the only it's the only possible thing we can do against these guys. They're better than us. It's kind of what defensive coordinators are saying, right? And we'll just man everything. We'll beat the crap out of them, and we just hope that they'll have a couple of bad plays. Um, that works when, you know, Gus Bradley did that and he had Stefan Gilmore on Travis Kelsey, which is not a usual person that any other DC will have to roll out there, right? The guy is 6'4", whatever he is. He's a tight end to Razor, right? That's what he is. And he's playing very well this season, by the way. No one else is really going to have have that uh, going to have that guy on their team for the most part. Um, and, and then well, last still- week, it was interesting to watch the Titans use Bayard in that way. Yeah. Right? Like, it doesn't have to be a corner, but if you have that one guy, you feel like, I can unleash him on Kelsey and figure out the rest later. There are Not every team has a Kevin Bayard either. There just aren't that many of those defensive backs at that level around the NFL. And that's where the Tony deal makes so much sense, is that you just get another slippery, make someone miss in space type guy. Hopefully, Sky Moore can do some of that down the stretch of the season too, because if it just becomes, we know what the third down game plan is for the opponent. One, you can include all those man-beater concepts where they just start leveraging the threat of Kelsey, right? It's like what they used to do with Jimmy Graham with the Saints, which is pure Y-ISO, and they have isolated Kelsey a lot more this season. They tried to do it in the second half of that Colts game when they were getting uh, Gilmore manned up on him which is just isolate him on one side of the formation we'll run a quick man beating concept to the other side of the formation and someone should spring open they've just gone and got slippery guys around him and then Juju's playing unbelievably well over the last month too so I have I have no no fear you know you go through any of the figures and it's just like oh yeah they scorch the earth doesn't matter what you plug in to try and figure out is there something I'm not seeing here on tape nope they scorch the earth the one I could find is when they get into the high red zone they run the ball too much and they get stuffed at a 50% clip <laughs> which is really really high and guess what they still have the second best red zone rate in the entire NFL so they, it doesn't matter 
we're we're nitpicking now. But when, <laughs> yeah. you, when you have a team like this, sometimes that's necessary to find a little bit of a, a little consternation, a little point of concern. All right, last game here: Colts and Raiders. A real question first: Do these Raiders' offensive struggles that they have seen over the last few weeks and in the second half of these games? Do they give you are you does that make you worried about just the long term health of the Josh McDaniels era in Las Vegas? Yes. Um this is a tough one for me. I was telling you before, I might have to write an eight part novel based on what I've been watching <laughs> with the Raiders the last few weeks. And I won't bore your listeners with it too much. I'll write about it a lot over the coming weeks. There's just something very strange about this where even the tempo of everything they've done, they've made it pure Brady, like 2013, 14 version where it's shift, motion, shift, set, pause, realign the mic. It's just so damn frustrating to watch. And what I don't understand from a general sense is, you know, John Gruden got fired for having racist and homophobic emails, having sent those as an employee somewhere else, right? He was not fired for not having a really innovative, cool offense, and I don't know why Josh McDaniels would not walk in the building and say, wow, this is a really cool invasive offense. Could you hand me one of those playbooks? And by the way, we've added Devontae Adams. This thing feels pretty good to go to just microwave and I'll get all the credit. I'll be called the Wizard. I'll be called the genius again and uh, a new hurrah for the second go around of McDaniels. Instead, he's brought with him an offense that Derek Carr is so uncomfortable with. That is the one thing that keeps leaping out when you watch them is this all feels so uncomfortable and we can dig through some of the reasons if you want but from skipping reads to like i said that strange tempo of getting to the line of scrimmage to the way adams is playing within it and i don't know if it's option routes or he's just not as interested or he's hurt it's just a a smorgasbord of little tiny concerns that add up and when they have good drives good execution of plays it's not really within the flow and rhythm of the offense really they just have good players making good plays and now they you lose oh, it's Waller a double and move Renfrew here a double weeks. move there yeah. like it just it doesn't feel like there's any sort of sustained rhythm on offense when you watch them whatsoever really the only yeah. game where it's felt like that is that houston game where they could just run the ball 40 times and marching up and down the field but when they played against a real nfl defense that has real nfl answers they've never they just haven't seemed to find that rhythm whatsoever they have run this season seven seven singular seven okay turn the back play action shots from under center that's it seven i think if we pulled you from a tv station and made you head coach with three days to prepare um which has happened in this league apparently the first thing we you made me OC. You said, hey, Ollie, you can come along. You be the OC. The first thing we'd say, we'd say, we have no idea what we're doing. What we should probably do, though, is get Devontae Adams on a double move and let Derek Carr heave it down the field, right? They've done it seven times, and they're under center all the time. Especially constantly. when you have this 21 personnel battering ram version of your running game. Part of the reason you have that in 2022 is so you can take three or four of those shots a game. It's infuriating when they run play action from under center or in any version of their play action, actually, their average depth of target is 3.8 yards. So they're using play action and that is a full yard that's by far the lowest in the league. And it's a full yard below the the second worst figure, which is the Giants, who are just scotch taping together saying we've got no players. And and I'm sure the Chargers are in the bottom three there as well. It's just mind-boggling. You have 
that you come into the season with a, a collection of, of weapons that anyone in the league would want to have, understanding your offensive line was a concern. And I get that's probably what their argument would be for why they don't do it as consistently, but they're under center all the time anyway. The best thing they could do to alleviate some of the pressure would be to get some mobility, some movement into the offensive if necessary, and to take some deep shots. And as you said, their big explosive plays, like the touchdown to Adams at the weekend, was him running a double move and decleating them the middle of the field center, and it's a touchdown. <laughs> what do you think is the element of the offense the car is most uncomfortable with? It, it's very, very hard to tell because I don't think you can just separate all the parts out. The totally. big thing I've noticed with him is is a lack of certainly comfort in the protection. So he's, he's skipping reads really quickly. He is focusing on one thing and getting away from it. I, I don't know how much you watch of the Saints game, but Dennis Allen being the the genius that he is, he would show double to Adams and roll away from it. And so Ad and so Carr is immediately thinking, okay, I'm not going to throw it to Devontae. I'll look somewhere else. And then at the snap, the guys roll, he looks somewhere else and it just completely threw off all the reads. But I, I think the main thing is the lack of sequencing in the offense, not even trying to get to a payoff play. But bouncing from, it looks to me like a staff who knows they're under fire because they'll go one drive, okay, well, I formation, let's just run the ball down someone's throat, let's try and get something going, nothing happens. All right, next drive, let's spread it out and see if we can get anything going that way, nothing happens. Let's go back to the I formation stuff and give that a try and let's, you know, let's try and get something going. There is no cohesion at all from one drive to the next, no week to the next. And I think that seeps through Carr's game, who's always been a massive, oh, Derek's in rhythm and feeling it this week kind of player. Yeah, he, among all the quarterbacks in the NFL, when he gets hot is the biggest noticeable difference between when it does feel disjointed. And this year it's felt disjointed pretty much the entire season. All right, next one here. This is a <laughs> really nothing else to ask but this. What the <laughs> fuck are the Colts going to look like for the next eight weeks? Like, th that's it. What are they going to look like? What is Parks Frazier going to be as a play caller? <laughs> like, who ends up playing quarterback for this team? I mean, this is just the weirdest situation in memory. And this weekend, we get to see it. And we get to see Jeff Saturday coach against the team that he was shitting on <laughs> on Twitter like two weeks ago. And we get to see Josh McDaniels against the team he turned down. And if he oh loses my God, that, you think just, about that. You can never show your face at a league meeting again, right? You just have to quickly call Belichick oh and return in a disguise to New England because you could just never show your face again. I don't know. I, I, I wrote a column today, which I, I can't even remember the word count. My poor editors thing was like 6,000 words. I don't know. And it was just pure <laughs> therapy on a page. It was like, I don't, I have no concept and I'm trying to figure out what could they do. I think there's some pretty correctable things they could do. Cause I think Frank Reich at the end kind of lost his way in some of what were the core principles of the Reich offense in, in more of a general sense. And I, the, one of the big, big issues they've had all season is they get in trouble in terms of protections and they make no adjustments all game. Huge, huge issues in six-man protection. They have to have six guys in because they have the worst starting guard in the NFL, essentially. So they put an extra back in to try and help out the guard. And it's just been a, a communication disaster throughout. And I imagine if nothing else, and he's never been on a headset in his life, and he's never run a game day operation, and uh, all is wildly concerning and could be hilarious. But if nothing else, I imagine Jeff Saturday would be pretty good at picking up protection issues in real time and adjusting the protection plan. That is all I can hold out hope for, that making that one minor change could be some kind of help. It's going to be musty television. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the Colts offense. And guess what? I have not been looking forward to watching the Colts <laughs> offense for a very long time this season. All right. We're going to take one more quick break. And then we're going to get back with multiple Wick scale options for week 10. 
people keep asking if I'm back. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. It's a great time for this because the John Wick 4 trailer came out today, <laughs> which is a holiday in my household. So really timing this up well. We've got a few to dig into here. None bigger than Mike McCarthy going back to play against the Packers. We talked about this earlier today. I think it's five wicks. <laughs> I think it has to be, right? I mean, think about all of the layers of this. Mike McCarthy gets fired. Matt LaFleur comes in. Packers go 13-3 and three that first year. Everything is about, oh, they were misusing Rodgers at the end. And I'm guilty of this. I, I was a part of this course. McCarthy was misusing Rodgers at the end. All they needed was to bring in somebody else. They've could totally turned this thing around. Rodgers wins two MVPs in a row. This team's winning 13 games a year. McCarthy gets to Dallas. He's struggling a little bit. Well, <laughs> hold on, everybody. Now, we've seen that when Aaron Rodgers is a little bit disinterested and frustrated, what that can do to your offense. <laughs> and so pulling apart how much of this was Mike McCarthy's fault at the end versus how much of it was Aaron Rodgers, all of that, I feel like the narrative winds have shifted a little bit here. And I can assume that Mike McCarthy wants to exact a little bit of revenge this weekend, and I don't blame him. Yeah, I don't think you can make the wick scale big enough for this one. It would be some kind of like, what is it, Fast 12 that's going to outer space? This would be like John Wick in space or something. <laughs> the extra element to this, and Mike McCarthy has done this plenty himself, by the way, with the, the in-game management stuff, which is a true, true failing of his coaching, right? They made it very clear on the way. I remember Bleach Report had an amazing story where there was a, a word used from like an anonymous source about McCarthy where I think the word was bozo and then Rogers used the same word like in the, the next preseason press conference. That was what they said about the man. It was not that like, you know, it was I a forgot failing. About the it was massage time to move stories, on. Getting massages yeah. in the middle of the day in his office. That's right. Everyone was just shitting on him. That's so true. They made him out to be a dope not just like a bad football coach, right? And so here he comes now with this freight train <laughs> ready to take on... Uh, uh, the Rogers situation is not just what happens to the offense, but what happens to the entire building when he's just not feeling it or when he's in this mode <laughs> is the whole building gets sour and the, the, the level of smugness for McCarthy must just be unbelievable. I mean, I guarantee you he wants to win by 50 this week. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, and I we'll see what happens. Like, I mean, this Packers team is an absolute mess. We just talked about how much the Cowboys are rolling right now on offense. Even if the Packers defense is better than the ones they played over the last two weeks, they've got most of their good players out. Like, there's a lot to be worried about here if you are Matt LaFleur and you are the Green Bay Packers going against Mike McCarthy. So, man, uh, five wicks I think is appropriate. Very rarely do we bust that out, but this <laughs> seems like the right moment. All right, next one here. Stephon Diggs going up against the Vikings. I'm assuming there's various opinions on this. I'm going two wicks for Steph against the Vikings for this reason. In the moment, right? If this had been week one of the 2020 season, when Diggs 2020, 2020, if this is yep. week one of the 2020 season, right after Diggs gets traded, we hadn't seen him in Buffalo. We didn't know how it was going to go. The level of acrimony is super, super high. Maybe this is four or five sort of wicks because he was unhappy and he was shipped out of town. Stefan Diggs getting shipped to Buffalo changed his football destiny. Like, I love Stefan Diggs in Minnesota. I thought he was a top five receiver when he was there. I have receipts. I was very, very excited about him with Josh Allen. But him getting to play with Allen has changed the entire trajectory of who he is, how he's going to be remembered, 
all of that stuff. So even if he was a little bit upset during his final days in Minneapolis and he was a little bit upset about getting traded initially, I still feel like this worked out just fine in the end for Stefan Dix. Oh, this has to be a, a one or even a negative. He's got to be rolling in there with full with cigars and high fives and how's everyone doing? How have you all been? I mean, he got traded to a generational quarterback and then was given the credit for like 10 weeks to a season <laughs> before we realized how special Josh Allen was, that it was all because of him. So I, it was a pretty sweet deal for me. It's not as though, you know, two wonderful cities, wonderful places, but it's not as though they made him move from Miami to Buffalo, right? He was trading in one whatever environment for a similar one. And now, as you said, his football destiny has been completely altered. So he should be rolling back there pretty pleased. Yeah, two might be strong. It might be one. I mean, again, I think that he was pretty upset near the end, and I get that, and it's never fun for a team to be like, you know, we don't want you anymore, but things have worked out just fine for Stefan Diggs. Related to this, Case Keenum playing against the Vikings? <laughs> Zero wicks. Like, I, ta- I talked about this earlier in the week. If he ends up playing... <laughs> for you guys that can't see the YouTube stream, it's just a picture of John Wick holding his puppy. Case Keenum was a career backup, a very good career backup, right? Like Case Keenum is one of those guys where he's one of the best 38 quarterbacks in the world. And that is a fantastic life. And he stumbles into this year as a starter with the Vikings. They have the second best offense in the league by DVOA. They go on this miracle run without their starting quarterback, without their starting running back for a huge chunk of the season. They get to the playoffs. They play against a Super Bowl worthy Saints team, like a probably the best roster top to bottom in the NFL that season. And they have one of the most memorable, spectacular moments in the history of the NFL postseason. I was there. I will remember it forever. And guess what? So will every Vikings fan from now until the end of time. Anytime Kirk Cut or Case Keenum steps into the Twin Cities, he will never buy a beer again for the rest of his life. He will get handshakes from strangers for the rest of his life. And beyond this, after that season, when he played this well, he gets a three-year, $50 million contract from the Broncos, 25 of which is guaranteed, he hadn't made $5 million in his entire career before he got that contract. I can't imagine there's any bad blood between Case Keenum and the Minnesota Vikings organization. Oh, no, he should just be blowing kisses and giving waves. I I can't imagine how many people he'll bump into who will introduce him to their child named Case. That's (laughs) looking at the timeline of this thing. There's probably going to be a few of them, some four or (laughs) five-year-olds. All right. That's all we got for, for the Wick scale. Before we get out of here, we're going to do win my fourth screen. It, this worked out well because we have a note from a British listener here. Benger, Benjamin James Wright says, I'm, I'm ready to implore, nay demand, you watch Texans at Giants this week. My friend Phil and I have traveled from Leeds, England to attend this game for no real reason <laughs> other than our love of football. We're attending Thursday night football to see the Panthers tomorrow night. Imagine how wow. miserable this game is going to make us ahead of seeing the Giants on Sunday. We've traveled so far to the game to see Damian Pierce slam into the G-Men's line over and over again while losing by 21 points. I also look forward to seeing Lovey Smith's bemused face as Davis Mills throws another pick. <laughs> the least you can do is share in this experience via your fourth screen, as know- knowing we'll have traveled 4,700 miles to get there. I've arranged this trip, and I'm not sure my friend knows how bad some of these games are going to be. <laughs> We finish our trip seeing the Eagles on Monday, so hoping for a fun game there at least. Uh, ben, I thank you very much. I hope you guys have a wonderful experience. I hope you eat well. I hope you get to see 
some decent football in all of those trips. I mean, it, there's a chance it's raining sideways and winds blowing like 40 <laughs> miles an hour in Carolina tonight. Can you imagine? What if his buddy isn't like a huge NFL uh, fan? Where you tough. fly all the way to the States and you're sitting in a pouring rainstorm watching Baker Mayfield play against Marcus Mariota. And all these He's going to write off football hit. forever. All these fans here is about how the bad games are sent over for the London games, right? What about these poor people who fly over there for the bad games? This is outrageous. I will say, watching Wink is like my version of Prestige TV, as you know. So I I will watch (laughs) Wink do anything, anytime. So be in my quad box. Have you had friends come over that were were big NFL fans that lived in the UK and came over here and just had a good or bad experience either way? Oh, yeah, yeah. Loads of people. Yeah, it's 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 like a pilgrimage for people. It sounds wonderful. I got. I, I wish that I loved a sport that was mainly paid in another country, so I had an excuse to go. All right, no picks this week. Nate is out. We will tweet out our picks against the spread, so we have those on record. Ollie, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to do this and for doing us a solid. We obviously love having you on the show. Please tell people where they can read and listen to your work, all of which is wonderful. Yeah, they can go to readoptional.substack.com. That's the newsletter where I deliver the, the sermons from the mountaintop about what this could look like with Jeff Saturday and Parks Fraser <laughs> and other such writings. Guys, really appreciate you guys listening. Please, if you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you can do that in the description of the podcast. You can do that if you're watching on YouTube right now. We are not going to have a Thursday night recap this week. Nate is out. Uh, so just... Time, time to take a break, especially with 30-mile-hour winds and a pouring rainstorm in Panthers-Falcons tonight. We will be back on Sunday, though. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend. Subscribe to The Athletic if you have not. Appreciate your guys' time. We'll talk to you soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.